Our scripture reading this morning is Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. That reading may be found in the Pew Bible on page 1041. Beginning with verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we avail ourselves of your blessing today. In this moment, we confess that we are gathered in Jesus' name, and we are gathered to be blessed by you. We've offered the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that give thanks to you, as is only right. And yet we long to be touched by you, to be built up as your church, to be encouraged in our faith, to be strengthened in your love. We need you to continue to open our eyes and open our hearts. So we pray that you would use your word in our midst today by your spirit, that you would speak to us and cause wonderful things pertaining to salvation to happen in our midst today. For Jesus' sake, we ask for this. Amen. Well, there's, there's an old song from the 1970s, actually from 1970. It was kind of a hippie anthem that laments how uh, in modern times people have, and the line is, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. It's a song about nature and trees and paradise and sort of mourning the, the loss of all that natural beauty. But one of the lines in the song says, don't it always seem to go? You don't know what you've Got you've lost till it's gone. And that, that may be true, uh, that we don't realize how valuable some things are until we lose them. But there is actually an even sadder reality than that, and that's the situation when something's gone and you don't even know you lost it. Uh, that's what's behind some of the conversations that, let me say, elderly people, my people, uh, <laughs> sometimes have with the younger generation. The older ones lament the way things are as over against the way things used to be. The younger ones have no idea that things ever used to be different from what they are now. But their lack of knowing that doesn't mean that something was not truly lost. Now, our Christmas series is entitled, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, as we just heard sung wonderfully. And, of course, the jump-off verse For that is found in Matthew's gospel, in his account of the birth of Jesus, and he records for us that Jesus would be born in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, so they would call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now that name, Emmanuel, God with us, might not be striking to a lot of people, but it's actually meant to be rather arresting. It's arresting because in the big narrative of the Bible, 
God with us is something that humanity used to have. But God with us is something that humanity lost. The paradise we used to have was God with us. But we essentially paved paradise and put up a parking lot, so to speak. And now we don't even remember that. We're so far removed from it that our situation is worse than you don't know what you've got till it's gone. I'm wondering if you know what it means to have God with us. Do you know how having God with us is a life or death matter? Would you like to understand how having God with us can affect every aspect of the way you live your life? I think the message of Emmanuel today can show this to you. Our sermon is entitled, Emmanuel, Come. And the theme of the message is, I've put it on this outline in your bulletin, it looks a lot like that, is that the presence of God lost to us in sin has been restored to believers through the coming of Jesus Christ, whose saving work conquers sin to secure life in God's presence forever. And if you follow this outline, we'll walk right through how God's presence was lost through sin, how God's presence is restored through Christ, and how God's presence is enjoyed in Christ, and then a few words about how we live in the restored presence of God. So God's presence lost through sin. The dwelling place of God used to be with man. Genesis chapter 2 recounts to us how God made mankind and placed them in a beautiful garden with everything they needed. Now what's not at first explicitly stated in those very familiar verses, but becomes obvious very quickly, is that God was dwelling with Adam and Eve in the garden. Because the Bible says He made them in His image, and He placed them in the garden, and He established relational fellowship with them. They were made like Him. They were made to know Him and made to dwell with Him. And you can learn that from what happened next in the text of Genesis Chapter 3, most of you know the story. Adam disobeyed God and broke his one rule by eating from the one and only tree that was forbidden to them to eat from, despite every other tree in the world belonging to them. And his disobedience had an immediate effect. One way of describing the effect of that disobedience would be to say that Adam and his wife died. Another way would be to say that the relationship with God was broken. God promised that when they ate from it, they would die. And that's what happened. It turns out that the broken relationship with God and dying are the same thing. It's the same thing. To be in a relationship with God is to have life. To be separated from God is to experience death. Listen to these words. You don't have to turn. From Genesis chapter 3, listen to how the Bible records what happened. It says, after they sinned, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, of the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid 
because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, I just want you to slow down and hear that. God was walking in the garden. That is the language of relational closeness. God walking in the garden was no surprise to Adam. God was always there with Adam and Eve. But now on account of sin, they didn't want to be with him. Hiding from God. I was afraid. I hid myself. Hiding from God is a sign of broken relationship. And and it was broken on both sides. It was broken because man hid from God. And the next thing God did was cast the man out, the man and the woman out. That same passage reads, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So you see, God cursed the humans on account of their sinful disobedience. The details of the curse, he cursed the woman with pain in childbirth. He cursed the man in particular with having to fight to get food instead of having it handed to him in a garden. But the summary of the curse is that God cast them out. Of the garden. And let me interpret that for you. The life that was in the garden was God who dwelt there with them. It was symbolized by the tree from which they could eat freely. But you don't get life from trees. God is the source of life. So to live in the garden would be to live with God and to live forever. And now that the relationship was broken, They weren't qualified to live with God and live forever. So God cast them out. To be sent out of the garden is to be driven away from God's presence. To be exiled. And to forfeit the life that comes from dwelling with Him. That's why it says those cherubim guarded the way to the garden. In the Bible, cherubim always guard the presence of God. That's what they do. These sinners were exiled from God's presence. You know, this idea of the life being in God himself is exactly what the New Testament goes on to teach us with great clarity in John 17. Jesus, in uh, talking about uh, what he had come to do for his disciples, he was praying to God and he said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So what mankind lost in the garden through the fall into sin, was life. What mankind lost in the garden, through the fall into sin, was God. They lost the presence of God, which was life. We suffered the loss of God's presence, which was the loss of life. But of course, all that bad news is just the backdrop to the good news that we celebrate All the time, and especially this time of year, God already had in mind the rescue operation for these exiled sinners. He already had in mind the reconciliation program for the estranged sinners with the broken relationship. Because even before he drove them out of his presence, he already put in place a promise to bring them back. The gospel that we believe and preach is God's promise 
to bring exiled sinners back to Himself. Back into a relationship. Back into His presence. He made that promise cryptically in the garden and He kept making it progressively as history unfolded. So we we learned that God's presence is to be restored through Christ. The the cryptic promise was what he said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between, talking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's actually a promise of gospel victory. This victory gospel given to Adam. This is God saying that he's going to send a savior descended from the woman, who would overcome the devil and the sin that he introduced in such a way that the humans could be rescued from sin and delivered from sin's curse and brought back from their exile from God in his life and into his presence. Now, future installments of that promise are going to happen all through redemptive history, all through the Bible. So you can hear the same promise in different words through the, what I've called the blessing gospel that was given to Abraham. In Genesis 12, God said this, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What, what does God's promise to bless mean? We've already learned what a curse is. The details of the blessing give a clue. Abraham's going to go into the go out from the land where he is to a better land that he doesn't know. He's going to become great, he's going to be honored, and others are going to be blessed through him. The blessing is the opposite of cursing. You understand that, right? God is promising to undo the curse. He's promising to bring Abraham back. <laughs> Back to the land from which man is exiled. Back to the place where he can live with God. He's going to move from poverty and dishonor to honor and greatness. This is a promise to undo the effects of sin and bring man back into God's presence. It's an early installment of that promise. He gets reiterated in Genesis 15. God adds details about a great reward and lots of children. It gets reiterated to Abraham in Genesis 17 where God puts it in terms of covenant, which is relationship language, relationship talk. Man was in a covenantal relationship with God in the garden, and that got broken, but God's promising to fix it. You can hear it reiterated, again, moving through the Scriptures, and we're just flying high. But in the the Gospel that came through Moses, I call it the holiness Gospel, because one of the ways of summing up that whole a law with Moses, it all illustrates how God is holy and man is sinful and how it's impossible for a sinful person to draw near to a holy God unless there's a sacrifice that takes away sin, the sin that separates sinners from God. And so that, that promise remains in play and it gets advanced The entire sacrificial system of Israel points to that same truth. You can can hear it again through the glory gospel given to Israel. God prescribed for them to build a tabernacle where he would locate himself in their midst. Exodus chapter 40 
unpacks this. A cloud of glory overshadowed the place to make it plain that God was locating himself there. Moses was permitted to draw near to God and to meet with him. And the whole nation was organized around that tent where that glory was in the middle of them. God was dwelling in their midst. It was a sign of the reconciliation and the bringing back that God was promising that he was going to effect. It was a promise of that. The same truth got reinforced when after Israel moved from having a tent of meeting to a permanent, a permanent temple that King Solomon built. The same thing happened. God inhabited the place in a cloud of glory. He dwelt there in the midst of His people. The nation organized around that temple. And when Israel as a nation sinned, how did God portray the coming, the, the curse and the coming undoing of the curse. He exiled them, reinforcing that sin brings exile. He sent them out of the land and away from the presence of the Lord. But the promise remained in effect. And one day God brought them back to say, I still have a promise of bringing people back to me. That wasn't the return God was promising, but it was a picture of it. I'm going to bring you back to my presence. The prophet Haggai records how the nation of Israel began to rebuild the temple that had been torn down where God used to locate himself. And when they started to rebuild it, it didn't look as good as the old one. And some of them were very sad. But he, God reiterated through the prophet a, a very specific promise. He said, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God was saying, a day is coming when I will gloriously dwell in the midst of my people and there will be peace between us. I will make for the peace between us and overcome the broken relationship between us. God would make peace. So God and man could dwell together. All that's a backdrop to Bethlehem. Against all that backdrop, we come to Bethlehem. And we hear these words from Matthew's Gospel. An angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus Christ came to save His people from the sins which have caused their separation from God. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the promise God made over and over again through the ages. It was necessary for the Savior to become flesh because He had to stand in the place of His people who deserved to be exiled from God for disobedience. It was necessary for the Savior to be fully God, however, because no mere human born of Adam could perfectly obey the Father and be qualified 
to stand in the place of others. Oh, if you read your Old Testament, you'll hear two themes intertwined over and over that God promises to send a servant to save His people. And God promises to come and visit His people Himself. Messiah will come to you, God promises. I will come to you, God promises. Both are true in the coming of Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us. And your saving work would be to overturn the sin that merited our exile from God's presence. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, perfectly obeying the law of God in everything He said and did and thought. He left nothing undone. And having earned the reward of life that comes from such righteous obedience, He instead traded places with His sinful people. He took our sins upon Himself and gave to us instead the credit for His perfect righteousness. He made Himself obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. Taking the curse onto Himself. Because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And He gave to us the blessing instead. Here's the curse on Jesus. Christ's death on the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and following. Jesus hangs on the cross. And the Bible says, From the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, in that hour... Jesus hung on the cross bearing the sins of His people and He entered into their exile. God the Father turned His back upon the Son as He bore sins for many. Jesus was driven out from the favored presence of the Father as a scapegoat for sins, as a sacrificial lamb that was slain so that His people would be forgiven and reconciled and brought back to God. And in doing this, He kept all of God's promises. The one promise that had been reiterated and reiterated throughout redemptive history. His death was the fulfillment of that victory promise in the garden. The victory over sin. Because in His death, the seed of the woman did crush the head of the seed of the servant. His death and resurrection were the fulfillment of that Blessing gospel given through Abraham because it undoes the curse. It brings God's people back into the land where He lives and moves them from dishonor to honor and glory. His death is the fulfillment of that holiness gospel promise because His saving work fulfills what Moses showed us. He provided the way for sinful man to come into the presence of holy God to draw near and to dwell together with Him. His death, His resurrection, His saving work, the fulfillment of that glory gospel given to Israel because He accomplished the cleansing from sin needed for God to come and inhabit His people as a holy temple with His glory all around. The glory of God returned to His temple with Jesus Christ and His saving work. 
And, and, and what is the result of all that for the people of God? The result is God with us forever. In Christ, God is now with us forever. That, that's why the Apostle John could write these words to believers, encouraging them in their faith in Christ. He's speaking of the fact that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, and he says, 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, meaning Christ in the flesh, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship with God is restored relationship with God. Fellowship with God is sharing with God. Fellowship with God is being with God. Believers have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Well, that is expressed in so many ways graphically in the New Testament. The, God's presence is now enjoyed in Christ by all who believe, by the church of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says it very plainly. It says, We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 1 Peter chapter 2 says the same thing. It says we are living stones in a holy temple where God lives. And understand this. By the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ Himself remains with us. Even in His physical absence for a time, until He comes for the consummation of all things, He said it plainly. And maybe you remember, when He commissioned His church to preach the gospel and make disciples, He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me, Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That means this age. I am with you always. The reigning king remains with us as he conquers the earth. Romans 8 refers to the Holy Spirit dwelling in believers as the Spirit of Christ. And is so bold as to say that means Christ is in you. Jesus Christ in us, with us. And I want you to grasp, my dear brothers and sisters, this presence of God in Christ that we enjoy. It is a corporate privilege. One which we enjoy together. The Lord of the church is in our midst. John's revelation, the last book in the Bible, captures this powerfully. In a letter written to actual churches like this one, a letter that applies to all the actual churches, 
John reports what he saw. He saw there was a spiritual reality that he saw in a vision. So with the veil pulled back, John says this. It's Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, the son of man figure is Jesus Christ, the risen and reigning king, who has physically ascended into heaven for this season. And if it was not plain what the vision means, John goes on to explain it. If you drop down to verse 20 in Revelation 1, he explains the mystery of the vision that he saw. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, this is Jesus explaining it to John, uh, and the seven golden lampstands, the mystery of that, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The lampstands are the churches, The Son of Man has the angels of the churches in His hand. Likely, those messengers means the human messengers. Those ministers who preach the Word of God. But the Son of Man, Jesus, stands in the midst of the lampstands. He stands in their midst. He is God dwelling in. In the midst of the churches. God with us. Now, there's no doubt that a greater glory of His presence awaits a coming day. We're going to hear about that next Lord's Day, the Lord willing. A day when we see Him face to face. Because today we don't see His face. He has physically ascended to heaven. Christ will return in glory and we shall all be changed and then we will be with Him in a glorified physical presence forever. There's a very real sense in which, as Jesus told us, He has gone away and will come again. And we long for that day. But I want you to know that there is an equally real sense in which Jesus is with us now. Dwelling in fellowship with us now. In our midst now and forever. Emmanuel has come and God is with us. Now how do you live when that's true? Well, some of you, my word to you, is that you need to come into God's presence by faith in Christ. I have good news for some of you sitting here. Some of you that I know, and some of you that I don't know, but I'm taking a shot. If you're ready to hear it. The presence of God that we're talking about is available to you through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you need to get your mind right about the fact, 
If you're a person outside of Christ, apart from Jesus Christ, you really do not have the presence of God. God may be everywhere in some sense. Of course that's true. But He is nowhere near you in any favorable sense if you're outside of Christ. All the talk you hear in our culture these days about spiritual people being in touch with God, experiencing God in nature, and all the rest of that, it's just not true. It's just not true. Because ever since the garden, ever since the fall into sin, there never has been a single person who drew near to God and experienced His presence in favor, His presence in life, by His own efforts, or through the help of nature, or philosophy, or any other created thing. Never has been. The only way to God in His life has been barred since that flaming sword went up. And the only people who have ever gotten to God and experienced the favor of His presence, the life of His presence, are those people whom He has sought out and brought to Himself through faith in the promise of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody who ever got to God got there because God brought Him there and because Jesus Christ accomplished the work that made the way there and the Holy Spirit of God applied that work and made it happen. What I'm saying to you is that today, that offer of life in Christ, life with God, is on the table for you. Through faith in Christ. You believe I just offered you that? I'm offering it on behalf of another. Now listen, if God is calling you to Himself, Here's what's going to happen. You will be convicted of your sin that disqualifies you from being with God. You will finally agree that you are not worthy of being with Him because you're a helpless sinner. You will stop bargaining or reasoning about whether you're all that bad compared to some really bad people that you know And you will just admit, finally, that you are defiled and unable to clean yourself up. You will confess your sins to God. You will plead the mercy of Christ. Not trying to beg your way in. Not trying to earn your way in. But just reaching out for mercy. You will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the essence of what you'll do. You will trust in His work on the cross for you. You will accept His Lordship over you. You will rest in His provision for you. You will come to Him. He will receive you. You will repent. You'll turn from your sins. First through a change of your heart and mind. And then by the following change of behavior in your words and deeds and thoughts. My question for you today is this. Is 
God calling you to Himself today. Another way of asking that is, will you come to Christ today? It's really the same question. Is He convicting you of sin at last? Are you ready to confess and repent and believe? So I call on you to come to Christ today. You can be saved if you believe you will be saved. What else do you do with this fabulous truth that God is with us? Well, I would say for you, my brothers and sisters, you need to grow in learning to live with the comfort of His presence. Now, as soon as I wrote those words down, the comfort of His presence, I knew I ran the risk of this sort of descending into a kind of sentimentalism that I don't approve of at all. I'm hoping you can see past any merely emotional shallowness into something that's deeper and more real than that. You know, I think sentimentalism is just where our emotions are stirred up about something. I'm not talking about you being misty-eyed because you think it's sweet that Jesus would love you and want to be with you. I mean, it is sweet. But I'm talking about the very real practice of a personal relationship with somebody who is there, not in your imagination, but in fact. Even though He's invisible, He's actually there. The Bible says that when we believe, we do not see Jesus, but we love Him, and our love leads to joy inexpressible and full of glory. I'm saying to you, to live with the comfort of His presence, you can talk to the Lord Jesus Christ throughout your day. He's listening all the time. He's with you. He's not talking back in personal dialogue. Don't feel like you're getting cheated. He speaks to us through His Word. His presence, though, is real. And the knowledge of His presence is a comfort deeper than merely emotional feelings. Because it's confidence. It is the certainty that God Almighty is present and present for you. He is present as your Advocate. He is present as your protector. He is present as your friend. Don't think of him as your overbearing chaperone. This is God dwelling with you as your friend. Jesus has called his followers friends, John 15, who know what the Father is doing. So that means when your life is hard and when your circumstances are hateful, or they make you fretful, or they're discouraging, or they're daunting, or they're overwhelming, you know for a fact that the one who's behind all these things and over all these things is in these things with you. You know that He has lived through the very same things in flesh just like yours. You know that the final and inevitable outcome of these horrific things that you might be going through is going to be you spending eternity in His presence physically and gloriously. And you even know that right now He's fitting you for that outcome through these things. And He's right there at every step. Not absent, but present. So anytime you feel like God is not with you, it's not God who has moved away. 
You're always free and empowered to draw near to God through Christ, by the Spirit, in the Word, and find grace to help in time of need from your friend. He's with you. That is a comfort. Christ was with our sister Paulette when she passed and was a comfort. Christ is with our brothers and sisters that are struggling to come back from horrible illness or maybe not come back. But Christ is with you when you walk through your trials. He's he's in it with you. So be comforted, I say. Be comforted. He's with you. And I add to that, not only be comforted, but fight sin by the power of His presence. Don't neglect what His presence means for your growth in holiness. First of all, just let the idea of living in God's presence frame your thinking about holiness. You care about personal growth in holiness because sin is the entire reason why we ever lost the presence of God. Sin is the enemy that had to be overcome to get us back to God. Sin is what brought us into curse. So now that we are uncursed, and now that Christ has defeated the enemy, and now that God has come and brought us back into His presence, do we want anything more to do with sin? We're not dogs who return to their own vomit. In Christ, we don't want anything to do with the sin that remains. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we are well able to fight successfully against our own remaining sin. Grasping the presence of God that we now enjoy is part of that battle. Why would I say that? Because the battle against sin is the battle to love God with all of your heart. Holiness is not achieved primarily by saying no to sin, but primarily by saying yes to God. Sin says, oh, God is nowhere to be seen, so go ahead and indulge yourself in whatever you desire. Holiness says, He is present with you. Indulge yourself in Him, the one whom you desire above all else, and keep drawing near to Him. Keep treasuring and enjoying Him. Keep pursuing Him. Enjoy His presence. And that will necessarily result in you drawing away from other things. And giving up other pleasures and denying other desires in favor of this one superior desire and love. And I want you to be clear in your mind. The one who is with you is with you in power. His presence in you means you have his power in you. Don't think about power as some kind of substance that God pours into us. It's him. Power is not enjoyed in God's absence. The whole record of the Old Testament sort of proves that. (laughs) When God is with us, we win. Because He's the power. You have resident within you, believer, the power to overcome the sins that beset you. Now, you don't have the power to make all sin disappear as a temptation or a competing desire. Jesus will finish that one day when He comes. But you have the power today... To love Him above everything else and to the exclusion of everything else. And that includes the exclusion of your various tempting pleasures. Christ in you means power. 
So don't neglect that. And then I would say, because God is with us, we ought to gather for joyful worship in his presence like we've done today. I think you need to grow to appreciate the special presence of God in our corporate gatherings. And once again, I know as soon as I use the word special, somebody's going to freak out that I'm starting to get mystical on you. I'm not. I am asserting the Bible teaches us that there is a supernatural experience that characterizes and defines the gathering of the saints for worship. Just as there's a supernatural experience that comes when God comes to us and saves us. That experience is premised upon the presence of Christ in our midst. Jesus is with us in worship and he is with us to bless us. That, that vision again in John's revelation, it's compelling. It sums up so much of the history of redemption through the whole Bible. Jesus is in our midst as a church. That means as gathered. A church is gathering, you know. When we gather from time to time, we gather on the Lord's Day, Jesus Christ is present with His people in a way that is distinguishable from the fact that God is everywhere. And distinguishable from the fact that God is with us as individuals. When the author of Hebrews exhorted the believers to draw near to God, he was exhorting people who already had God living inside of them, but his command was not nonsense. Together, the church draws near to God in worship. We do it in one heart. We do it with one voice. We do it in one spirit, the Bible says. The Holy Spirit. And when we do, God also draws near to us together. He gives us His grace together. He blesses us together. That blessing, while supernatural, comes to us through known and ordinary mechanisms. Call them ordinary means of grace. And they are, namely, the preaching of the Word of God through which Jesus Christ's own voice can be heard to ears of faith and received by us together as the household of faith. And the sacraments are the ordinances of the Lord, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are to us both signs and seals of His saving work to our hearts. These sacraments are ministries of the Word. And so in the same way that God speaks to us through the preaching of the Word, He also speaks to us through the Word made visible. It's the same Word through a different mechanism. And the same Savior is present to minister to us. When we gather as a church to offer our worship to God together, we draw near to Him. When we gather around the waters of baptism to induct another soul into the assembly, they, they come into the gathering where Christ is in our midst. We gather around the Lord's table. We both remember His death and anticipate His physical return. And we do not gather at a table where Christ is absent, but where He is present in our midst. He is physically absent for this time, but He remains with us. He remains the host at the table. We feed on Him. We feast with Him in spirit. He is spiritually present. He is God with us. So my dear brothers, the good news of Christmas, I say to you, is indeed that Emmanuel has come. God has come to be with us. I pray God give us the grace to rejoice at His coming to us
to save us, to reclaim us, and to dwell in our midst. For Jesus' sake, let us pray. Our Father, how can we say thank You for seeking and saving that which was lost? How can we say thank You for restoring that which was broken? How can we say thank You for bringing us back to You in relationship, for You to dwell in our midst? Thank You for Jesus Christ, who is God with us. May You be pleased to build Your church. And cause us to rejoice in Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen.